Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, and I'm Charles Burton, a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and I'm here with the distinguished Hong Kong democracy activist Martin Lee uh, to discuss civil liberties in Hong Kong and the threat that Beijing is posing to them. Mr. Lee has been a prominent advocate for democracy and human rights in Hong Kong over the past more than 30 years. In 1985, he joined the Hong Kong Basic Law Drafting Committee to assist in the drafting of Hong Kong's Basic Law, which was intended to function as Constitution of Hong Kong after Hong Kong's reversion to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. He is the founding chairman of the United Democrats of Hong Kong and its successor, the Democratic Party. And Mr. Lee was a member of the Legislative Council of Hong Kong from 1985 to 1997 and from 1998 to 2008. So very happy to have this opportunity to uh, meet with you to discuss civil liberties in Hong Kong and the threat that Beijing is posing to them. Uh, perhaps uh, for the first question, uh, you could tell me, Mr. Lee, what you hope to accomplish through this visit to uh, North America that you're currently engaged in. Well, uh, we want to tell uh, the Canadians and uh, the government what's been happening in Hong Kong. And it's uh, unfortunately bad news. Um, the uh, Sino-British Joint Declaration signed between Britain and uh, the PLC China um, back in 1984 is not being honored in a number of ways. But the most recent one, which uh, gave us a lot of concern and should give Canadians a lot of concern, um, is the attempt now of the Hong Kong government trying to push through the Hong Kong legislature a bill which would uh, cause problems uh, about uh, extradition. Now, throughout these years, uh, up to now, the uh, Hong Kong government has not reached any agreement with mainland China on rendition, uh, which is the similar word to uh, extradition, except that extradition is between different countries and rendition is between different parts of the same country. That is, if there is any fugitive offender uh, in Hong Kong having committed a criminal offence in the mainland, um, and the mainland China would like to have this chapi sent back to mainland China, uh, who would be prosecuted there, and then there would be a request from mainland China to the Hong Kong government, and uh, the person would then be sent back to China, mainland, when certain evidence is put before our courts. And it's not, uh, not a lot of evidence, it's only what we call prima facie evidence. Now, all these, throughout all these years, there is no such arrangement for one simple reason. We don't believe the uh, standard of the judicial system is good enough. In other words, we don't trust the system. That is why we don't want our people to be sent back to China to face trial there. And so before the handover, there was no problem because the British government never signed an extradition treaty with China. And uh, even today, there is no extradition treaty between China and Britain or between China and Canada. But after the handover, when Hong Kong became part of China as a special administrative region, 
China, the central government of China, actually consented to Hong Kong entering into such agreements, extradition agreements, with countries like Canada. Even though China could not persuade the Canadian government to, to make an extradition treaty between the two countries. Because the Canadian government trusts the Hong Kong judicial system. So for many years now, there was no such arrangement. But recently, there is a, a case involving a Hong Kong young man who um, went to Taiwan uh, with his girlfriend and he murdered his girlfriend in Taiwan and then returned to Hong Kong. And he was arrested in Hong Kong and the Hong Kong courts have no jurisdiction over the murder charge. They convicted him of certain related offences which are minor in nature, imperatively of course. And um, so the Hong Kong government took advantage of this situation and claimed that it would be wrong for Hong Kong to remain a haven for criminals and therefore wanted to change the whole system by changing our law so that fugitive offenders after the passage of the law would be sent back to mainland China as well as Taiwan. Now, now Taiwan is uh, in fact more acceptable to Hong Kong because their judicial system is not bad. Certainly much better than that in mainland China. So it could be done by changing the law somewhat to allow on a case-to-case -case basis to have this particular individual to be simply transferred to Taiwan for trial for murder there. But the Hong Kong government didn't want to take that route, even though it was clearly possible and would not have met with any opposition from uh, other political parties. And they deliberately picked this opportunity as a pretext, we believe, to open our doors to the transfer of offenders to mainland China, where the system of law is not to be trusted. And then that is why there's a lot of opposition. Now, why would that impinge on the Canadian government. Why is it a concern of the Canadian government? It's because there are 300,000 Canadians living or working in Hong Kong. And that is the official figure. The unofficial one, we believe, is in well above half a million. Now, so something could go wrong, and then one of these Canadian citizens could be then transferred back to China for trial. And it would then pose a problem, immediate problem, to the Canadian government. And you've got to make sure that uh, they are not maltreated in China. But of course, how can you guarantee that? We know from experience that once a person is transferred back to China, or once a person gets arrested in China, they are very good in getting confession statements out of you. So within two weeks, you will probably make a confession statement before a TV camera. And then 
you will be made to confess to whatever crime they want you to commit to. That's a problem right away. Now, since we don't trust the system, we don't think that should be done in Hong Kong now, particularly when this has not been done for donkey's years, both under British rule and under Chinese rule. But the Hong Kong government claims that this is important, it has to be done right away, and they actually said that it should be done certainly before July, if not before the end of May. So there's great urgency in this. That's why we have come here to warn your government that it really should do something about it, should not allow this terrible bill to be passed, and that Hong Kong government should withdraw the bill. After Canada, we're going to the USA with the same message, and hopefully with enough international support to our cause, hopefully the government, the Hong Kong government, will then withdraw the bill. So that, that's why we're, we're here. That is a very long way of explaining it. It uh, has taken nine minutes and 29 seconds. <laughs> I noticed in the uh, Canadian Chinese press that you also referred to another uh, violation of the basic law, which are the customs procedures that the Kowloon West High Speed Railway Station. Could you discuss why you think that that's such a serious matter in terms of um, the maintenance of civil liberties and, and democracy in Hong Kong? All right, now you ask for it, I'll give you another long answer. <laughs> but you should know this because you've got similar arrangement, not the same, but similar arrangement with the Americans. Yes, so we if do. I fly over, uh, say to Toronto from Hong Kong, and then uh, after leaving my plane, I will go through customs check on the Canadian side, and immediately I go over to another checkpoint, and the US officials will be there. Right? It's a very handy way of going through customs and immigration in one location rather than two. And in Hong Kong, because we have now joined part of this express whale, which would take us all the way to uh, Beijing, that it was certainly a convenient way of doing uh, these checks in the one location, which the Hong Kong government suggested uh, in the terminal in Western Kowloon, which is really the, in the heart of the Hong Kong area, right? the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. I have no problem with that. But the way they went about it was clearly awful. And what they did actually was to say, okay, now there are these four stories within this rail terminal, and in order to make it easy for everybody, we will turn that area into part of the mainland so that instead of Hong Kong laws applying to that area, like the rest of Hong Kong, in that particular area, the Chinese law will then apply. And all the Chinese laws will be imported and the Chinese laws will displace our Hong Kong laws. So if you happen to be there, and you're involved in a fight with somebody. Now, the Chinese authorities will then investigate whether that is uh, you have committed any crime. And if they say that you have, then you will be prosecuted in a Chinese court according to Chinese law. And if you are convicted, if you knock somebody's head against something, 
in self-defense, but they say that you killed the person, then you may be convicted of murder. And of course, in China, there is the capital punishment. So we say, why? Why do you need to do that? Look at the way the uh, Americans and the Canadians have worked it out. Why can't we follow suit? And the Hong Kong government said, oh, it's not as convenient as our suggestion. But at what cost to Hong Kong? So that is totally wrong, and that is why we objected to it. So if someone violated the law in this railway station, they would then be uh, transported to China to face Chinese justice? Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of extraterritoriality um, in the new version. Yeah, as I put it, if you look at big China as a desert, as far as the rule of law is concerned, and then you look at Hong Kong, then it's, it's a pleasant oasis where you meet people enjoy the rule of law. And yet our government created a little desert within this oasis. And you ask why? I think certainly, That's you know, Canada is. has had similar concerns about China's request to have an extradition treaty with Canada as part of the conditionality for a free trade agreement that ostensibly would lead to uh, a lot of promotion of Canadian prosperity. But uh, we find that when the Chinese government makes requests to Canada for the return of, of Chinese nationals who've fallen afoul of the regime and fled to Canada, that the Chinese government is not prepared to give us very fulsome information about what laws such people may have um, may have uh, violated, which makes it very difficult for us to consider extradition unless we're convinced that they've done something that would in fact be illegal in Canada, leaving aside the pervasive question of the lack of due process of law and uh, torture and interrogation and extensive use of the death penalty. Yeah. In some cases, they have given us a diplomatic note saying that the, um, that the convicted person will not be subject to the death penalty which suggests that the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs is already able to anticipate the result of a Chinese judicial process. So, you know, that can be quite uh, troublesome. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, with regard to the, um, you estimate uh, half a million Canadians in Hong Kong from unofficial sources, our, you know, our, our government thinks it's about 300,000 anyway, a very large number. Um, you know, what are the conditions under which Canadians in Hong Kong would would have to think about returning to Canada? What are the, the sort of um, milestones that would have to be crossed that would say to Canadians in Hong Kong that Hong Kong is no longer a place where you can feel a sense of, of safety and, and uh, the ability to engage in a, in a way of life consistent with the values that have informed um, Hong Kong uh, since, uh, since uh, Hong Kong um, was established? In other words, free press and you know freedom of movement and uh, yeah. and uh, and an assurance of due process of law for uh, Hong Kong people in Hong Kong. Surely, but let me come back to your uh, earlier statement about the death penalty. Of course, if there is any extradition agreement between uh, Canada and China, that would be stated. Your government would certainly insist to be stated that if China wants somebody from Canada to be sent back to China for a trial, and if convicted, that even though there is a death penalty passed, yes. China must undertake not to carry it out. The Canadian government, I'm sure, will extract that undertaking. 
But don't feel sure about that, even if they give you that undertaking without any reservation. Because there are cases in, Hong, uh, in China that we know in Hong Kong of people who commit suicide while in custody. Yes. Now they will say, well, the guy killed himself. But we also know that there are occasions when they commit the suicide for the guy. So that they're not my fault. And I feel sorry that this guy killed himself. But, uh, but we know yes. that this well, guy, was, in fact, was killed. We have else. had this example with so the Lai Chang Xin case where um, now, you know, his brother died mysteriously in incarceration. And then we extracted, Canada extracted a promise from the government of China that we would be able to visit Mr. Lai in the incarceration facility in Fujian to ensure that he's being well treated. But the Chinese government reneged on that promise once they got him back. So, you know, it's very difficult, as you know, to rely on, on commitments from the government of China as they tend to reinterpret them to their, to their liking after we've already agreed to them. Indeed, indeed. I mean, the, the problem is China will promise you everything to get an agreement with you, and then after the agreement, then they will decide what to do. Uh, if they want to, if there's money in it, they will continue to honor the obligation under it. But it is, if they're losing money, they just tear it up to pieces. So even with the agreement on Hong Kong, which is the important thing, and so I would suggest that your government should really think hard and look at how. The agreement over Hong Kong is being broken by China time and again. So what good is it to reach a trade deal with China? And of course, your people would make sure that the terms are in favor of Canada and so on and so on. The agreement is yes. good, but if they don't want it, what do you do? I mean, that's the problem. And Hong Kong is a very good case for that. The Canadian government strongly supported the Sino-British Joint Declaration back in 1984, although it had nothing to do with the Canadian government. And that was because the Chinese government worked very hard to get international support of their agreement with Britain. And so the Canadian government, like the US government, applauded that agreement when it was announced uh, to the public on the uh, 26th of September 1984. And at the time, I was wondering why. It didn't concern the Canadians. Why did they applaud? And now I know because China invited them to support it openly to, to stop the immigration tide from Hong Kong. So once the Canadian government was actually invited by Beijing to support the agreement over Hong Kong, then China breaks that agreement. Surely it's uh, up to the Canadian government to speak up for Hong Kong. And I would say that the Canadian government owes the Hong Kong people an, a moral obligation to speak up for us when something is going wrong on an agreement which is supported yes, by and I think the Canadian that we government. Did sign the, um, we did endorse the basic law when it was lodged with the United Nations. So I think that Canada does have an international obligation. I'm sorry. Sorry, I, I, sorry, I must correct you. It's the Sino-British Joint Declaration which was registered with the U.S. Yes, not the slip of my mind. I think it was but a would you say it's the same sort of, of um, obligation that we've, that Canada is part of it, and therefore we should, yeah. so many years later, still take responsibility for, for its implementation? Well, you, you owe Hong Kong people a moral obligation. I mean, look at it this way. A lot of people left Hong Kong in spite of it, and a lot of them came to Canada, but others did not. 
And a lot of people from Hong Kong decided to remain, mm -hmm. some because they were not rich enough to get away, and some because they were not allowed by the various governments concerned. But some have decided to stay on to make it work, knowing yes. that there is international support of that agreement. Particularly, particularly the duty is on the part of the British government because it was the Sino-British agreement. And yet the British agreement is not doing anything because there's so much money that China can offer in terms of China trade. So, but the, re, the, but the fact that the British government is not honoring her obligations towards Hong Kong people doesn't mean that the other governments should also follow them. Because your, your government still supports the one country, two policy, uh, the one country, two systems policy. And, and so that is, as I call it, a moral obligation to speak up when something is going wrong. And it is in, also in the Kenyan government's own interest to make sure that China will honor the agreement over Hong Kong so that China can be trusted with other Yes, I think that that is a key countries. point for us in terms of our future relations with China is uh, an assurance that China will meet the uh, international standards and the the values that inform um, the, the international order. And up to now, from our recent experience with China since the arrest of the Huawei CFO, Meng Wanzhou, we find that uh, China is flaunting these uh, international obligations, both in terms of trade with the WTO by uh, sanctions against uh, Im imports of Canadian um, agricultural products like canola seed and pork based on no valid grounds, and in terms of China's commitment to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by arresting Canadian citizens without any charge or, um, or allowing them any opportunity for defense. So I think the Canadian government is currently considering how we should proceed from here. And I think that we will be uh, remaking our China policy and that what China does in Hong Kong is something that Canada and Canadians will, will pay attention to. If I could turn to another question, you've been engaged in this sort of work for a long time. I, I, I have met you once before prior to 1997 when you were in Toronto with Sutu Hua uh, discussing how Canada should prepare for the transition. I think at the time, yeah. you know, we were concerned that yourself and Mr. Sutu could end up in prison if things didn't go well. Now there's a new generation of activists, you know, Joshua Wong and uh, Nathan Lau, who I understand is traveling with you. How are your perspectives on, on how we should be addressing China's flaunting of the basic law in Hong Kong compared to this uh, younger generation who seem to be much more um, ardent in the desire for some sort of independent um, Hong Kong? Well, in fact, um, there are very few people who really want independence because they know it's not possible. I mean, in an ideal world, if we are looking at the whole thing all over again and decide what is the correct, the proper future for Hong Kong, and if everything, every option is open, then I, I think a lot of people will go for independence. But we don't have that option. We never had that option. Because in the year 1972, 
the British government already, under pressure from the People's Republic of China, who just got admitted into the United Nations, uh, to withdraw mm -hmm. Hong Kong from the list of colonies under British rule. So from that moment onwards, the British government actually accepted that Hong Kong is not a colony. Then clearly, they were already paving the way for Hong Kong to be returned to China one day. So that's a problem. And so the, the, the way forward is for every country to insist that all agreements made by China must be kept, just as the other countries should also keep their agreements. And that is the only hope for Hong Kong. These young people, they, they, they take their future seriously, and but I don't think they want independence. They know it is not a... And so you don't see any any uh, disagreement between yourselves and the younger generation of the 2014 umbrella movement? You're, you're more or less all in agreement that the change has to come from, from China and not from changing the arrangements in Hong Kong? Well, we, we are not in the position to change because <laughs> yeah. the army is actually located in Hong Kong. We don't have, you know, we, we have no weapons, and I don't think the future of Hong Kong lies in a civil war. I don't think any government would assist Hong Kong in that sort of situation. That's the hard reality. But our young leaders are not asking for independence. They just want China. I think to certainly when I was, you know, in 1997, when I was a younger man than I am now, I, I was optimistic about the 50 years no change because the expectation was that, that China would come into compliance with international norms of governance, democracy, and human rights. Um, you know, China signed the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights in 1998. And so I think that for a lot of us, we were complacent that this Hong Kong problem, as one might put it, would resolve by itself. Now, uh, 20 years later, uh, you know, clearly this is not the case and the situation appears to be deteriorating. And so I, I do despair about the future, um, in, you know, exactly. as you say, because China is very large, Hong Kong is very small, and there seems to be a lack of political will on the part of democracies to, to defend Hong Kong against um, the, the treaty violations that China is, I guess, in a staged way implementing. Yeah, they, they allow the Chinese government to get away with all these serious breaches of the Sino-British Joint Declaration. And, and, and they are getting, the, in a way, they are reaping what they sow. They allow China to get away with it. And so China is more and more difficult. They, they, they are now finding more and more difficult to hold China to yes. Other I think that's what the Western world is now them. coming to to realize that our previous Chinese policy towards China, largely of appeasement, in the hope of gaining economic benefits through China reducing non-tariff barriers to our goods and services, is not is not working out in our favor, and that and that uh, our friendship of utility with China is uh, is one that is very shallow and ultimately will uh, turn against our, the interests of the West. If I could, on that ground, ask one last question. 
before we mm -hmm. finish, which is, do you have any advice for Canada as Canada reassesses our relations with China in light of the current crisis in Canada-China relations? As someone who knows China well, how do you think we can get the best sort of result from the Chinese regime in terms of trying to, to develop a relationship based on on uh, genuine mutual benefit, honesty, and trust. There's only one way. You've got to decide among yourselves what you want out of any deal with China. And think at what price are you prepared to pay. And then consider is it really in the interest of the Canadians for that deal to be made? If not, don't make it. If you think it's good enough and China is willing to sign, ask yourself, how can you enforce that deal if China breaks it? And don't just sign it because China is prepared to sign it. Otherwise, Trouble will come, and you've got to decide now rather than later, because it's much more difficult to, to, to get it right later. Thank you very much for giving so much of your time to Pod Bless Canada, and I, I wish you all the, all the best in your safe travels to the United States. Thank you again, Mr. Lee. Thank you, Charles.